0: Section 13 of The Jolly Parisiennes and Other Novelettes This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K Hand Nace the Brunette by Emile Zola Translated by George D. Cox Chapter 3. Discovered What a glorious month it was! Not one day of rain. The sky, invariably blue, displayed a satin sheen, unflecked by any cloud. The sun rose a ruddy crystal and sank in a cloud of golden dust. Yet it was not hot, for the sea-breeze came with the sun, and though it died away when he set, the nights were deliciously cool, and balmy with the scent of aromatic plants diffusing the sweetness gathered during the day. The country is splendid. From the two sides of the bay, rocky arms jut out, whilst in the distance the islands seemed to bound the horizon. In fine weather, the sea appears to be nothing but a vast basin, a lake of an intense blue. In the distance, at the foot of the mountains, the houses of Marseilles climb up the low hills. When the atmosphere is clear, one can see from Lestock the gray Joliette pier and the slender masts of the vessels in the port. Beyond, houses peep out from amongst the clumps of trees, and the chapel of Notre-Dame-de-la-Garde glitters white against the sky. The coastline winds about and takes broad sweeps before reaching Lestock, where manufactories throw out intermittent clouds of smoke. When the sun sinks below the horizon, the sea, almost black, seems as if asleep between two rocky promontories, whose whiteness is relieved by their tinges of yellow and brown. And the pines show their dark green foliage against the reddish soil beyond. It is a vast tableau, a glimpse of the east disappearing with the dazzling heat of day. But Lestocq has other sights besides the sea. The village clinging to the mountain side is traversed by roads which wind through a chaos of shattered rocks. The railway between Marseille and Lyon passes amid these masses crosses bridges thrown over ravines, and plunges under cliffs themselves, remaining there for some four miles in what is called the Tunnel of La Nerte, the longest one in France. Nothing can equal the savage grandeur of these gorges hollowed out amongst the hills, these narrow paths winding along at the foot of precipices, these barren mountains planted with pines, uprearing their ramparts tinged with rust and blood. Now and then a defile widens out, a field of struggling olive trees fills the hollow of a valley, a lonely house shows its white frontage and closed shutters. Then come other rugged paths, impenetrable thickets, overturned rocks, dried-up torrents, all the surprises of a desert march. Overall, above the black fringe of pines, the sky stretches its expanse of silky blue. Then there is the narrow line of coast between the rocks and the sea, the red soil pitted with immense holes from which is taken the clay for tile making the chief industry of the district everywhere the ground is cracked and sundered supporting with difficulty a few sickly trees and seemingly parched by a breath of burning passion the roads are like beds of plaster in which the traveler sinks to the angles at every step and flying clouds of dust powder the hedges at the least puff of wind little gray lizards sleep along the heated walls which reverberate like ovens whilst from the scorched grass rise whirring clouds of locusts in the still and heavy air of the sleepy south there was no other sign of life than the grasshopper's monotonous song it was in this land of fire that nace and Friedrich loved one another during a month it was as if all the heat of the sky had entered their veins For the first week they were satisfied with their nightly meetings under the same olive tree on the edge of the cliff. There they tasted untold bliss. The cool night soothed their fever. They held their burning cheeks and hands to the passing breeze, refreshing as a mountain spring. The sea broke with its slow and voluptuous dirge over the rocks at their feet. The penetrating odor of seaweed intoxicated them then leaning on one another's arms overcome by delicious weariness they watched across the bay the lights of marseilles tinging the water at the mouth of the port with a reflection as of blood the twinkling gas lights outlining the streets in many a graceful curve while in the midst of all above the town it seemed as if there were a mass of sparkling flame the garden on the colline bonaparte was plainly distinguishable by a double row of lights mounting heavenwards these innumerable lights above the bosom of the slumbering bay appeared to be illuminating some fairy town which the dawn would presently sweep away and the sky stretched over the black chaos of the horizon also had its charm for them a charm which alarmed and made them cling closer to one another a rain of stars fell on those clear provincial nights the constellations resembled living flames Shuddering beneath the vast space, they bowed their heads, turning their gaze on the solitary flicker of the Planier lighthouse, whose dancing scintillation stirred them, whilst their lips met again in a caress. But one night their eyes fell on the gigantic disk of the moon, glaring upon them with her yellow face. On the sea a train of fire glittered, as if some enormous fish, some serpent from the depths, were trailing its endless folds of golden scales. And then a half light obscured the glitter of marseilles and bathed the outlines of the gulf as the moon rose the light increased the shadows became more sharply defined this heavenly witness was unwelcome to them they feared they might be surprised if they remained so near la blancarde when they next met they left the grounds and walked into the shadowy open country they found a meeting place in the, a deserted tile field the ruined shed concealed a pit in which two ovens remained still open. But this hovel saddened them. They preferred to have the open sky above their heads. They explored the red clay pits and discovered delightful nooks, perfect little deserts, whence they could hear nothing but the barking of watchdogs. They prolonged their walks, wandering along the rocky coast in the direction of Nilon, following the course of the narrow gorges in search of distant grottoes and crevasses. For a fortnight their nights were one round of joy and love. The moon had disappeared, the sky had become dark again, but now it seemed to them as if La Blancarde was too small to hold them, as if they needed the limitless expanse beyond. One night, as they were following a path above Lestock in order to gain the gorges of Lanerte, they fancied they heard a muffled step keeping pace with theirs behind a plantation of pines stretching by the side of the road. They stopped in alarm. Did you hear that asked frederick yes some stray dog whispered nace and they continued on their way but at the first bend in the road after leaving the pines they distinctly saw a dark object glide behind the rocks it was certainly a human being curiously shaped looking indeed as if it were humpbacked nace uttered a slight exclamation wait here she said quickly and then she darted in pursuit of the shadow Presently, Frederick heard the sound of a rapid whispering. She returned composed, but rather pale. "'What is it?' he asked. "'Nothing,' she replied. Then after a moment's silence, she continued. "'If you hear any steps, don't be alarmed. It's Tuan. You know the humpback. He wants to keep watch over us.' And in fact, Friedrich was occasionally conscious of someone following them in the darkness. It was as if a protecting arm were stretched over them. More than once Nace tried to drive Tuan away, but the poor fellow merely asked to be her dog. He would not be seen, he would not be heard, why should he not be allowed to do as he pleased? From that time forward, if the lovers had listened between their caresses in the ruined tile-sheds, in the deserted quarries, in the depths of the lonely gorges, they would have caught the sound of smothered sobs behind them. It was Tuan, their watchdog, weeping in his horny hands. But at last the knights no longer sufficed them. They grew emboldened and took advantage of every opportunity. Often in a corridor at La Blancarde, in a room where they chanced to meet, they exchanged a long caress. Even at a table when she was waiting and he asked for a plate or some bread, he found means to clasp her hand. Madame Rostand, who saw nothing, still blamed her son for being too severe towards his old playmate. One day she almost surprised them. But Nace— Hearing the rustle of her dress, quickly knelt down and began wiping with her handkerchief her young master's feet, which were white with the dust. Nace and Friedrich had yet a thousand little joys. After dinner, when the evening was cool, Madame Rostand often liked to go for a walk. She then took her son's arm and went down to Lestac, telling Nace to bring her shawl as a measure of precaution. They went, all three of them, to see the sardine fishers come in. Out at sea the lanterns danced, and soon the dark outlines of the boats could be seen, nearing the beach, amid the muffled sound of the oars. On good days joyous voices would ring out, and the women would hurry down, laden with baskets, while the three men who manned each boat set to work to empty the net, which as it lay under the thwarts looked like a broad, dark ribbon dotted with flashes of silver. The sardines, hanging by the gills to the meshes, still struggled and threw out a metallic luster. Then they fell into the baskets like a shower of silver pieces, amid the pale light of the lanterns. Madame Rostand would often stand near a boat, interested by the sight, and leave her son's arm to talk to the fishermen. whilst Friedrich, standing at Nace's side outside the radius of light, clasped the girl's hands in a burst of passion. Meantime, old Micolin preserved his stubborn silence. He went out fishing and came home to do a day's work, with always the same deep look on his face. But for some time past his little grey eyes had worn an uneasy expression. He threw side-glances at Nace, without saying a word. She seemed to him changed. There was something about her that he could not quite understand. One day she ventured to argue with him, and then he gave her a blow which cut her lip. That evening, when Frederick saw her mouth swollen, he questioned her anxiously. "'It's nothing. Only a blow my father gave me,' she said. Her tone was gloomy then the young man became angry and declared that he would see into it no never mind she said it's my business there will soon be an end to it she never told him of the beatings which she received only on the days when her father had treated her cruelly she caressed her lover with more ardor as if to avenge herself on the old man for three weeks nice had left the house almost every night At first she had taken the most minute precautions, then rashness seized hold of her, and she ventured upon everything. However, when she saw that her father suspected something, her prudence returned. She missed two appointments. Her mother had told her that Mikulín did not sleep at night. He got up and went from one door to another. But on the third day, seeing Friedrich's supplicating look, the girl once more forgot all prudence. She went out at about eleven o'clock, promising herself she would not stay away more than an hour, and she was in hopes that her father, being in his first sleep, would not hear her. Friedrich was waiting for her under the olive trees. Without telling her fears, she refused to go further away. They sat down in their usual place, looking at the sea and the glow of Marseille. The planier light was beaming. As Nace watched it, she fell asleep on Friedrich's shoulder. He did not move and gradually yielding to fatigue himself, his own eyes closed. No sound, only the chirp of the grasshopper. The sea slept like the lovers. But suddenly a dark form issued from the shadows and approached them. It was Micheline, who, awakened by the creaking of a window, had missed Nace from her room. He had left the house taking a small hatchet with him. When he saw a dark mass under the olive tree he grasped the handle of the implement. But the children did not stir. He was able to walk up to them, bend down, and look in their faces. A slight exclamation escaped him as he recognized his young master. No, no, he could not kill him thus. The blood spilled on the ground would leave traces behind it and would cost him too dear. He stood upright while a look of savage determination came over his tanned face. A peasant does not openly murder his master, for the master, even when he lies under the ground, is always the stronger and so Micheline shook his head and went off with stealthy strides, leaving the lovers asleep. When Nace returned to her room shortly before daybreak, much alarmed at having stayed away so long, she found her window just as she had left it. At breakfast, Micheline calmly watched her eating her piece of bread. She felt safe. Her father knew nothing. End of section 13.